0: Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right, good. Well, I'm glad to be here this morning. Glad to be here with you. I also want to welcome Milleage Grange Campus and all of those of you watching with us online today. We are so glad you are here. Now, before we get too far into this message, I have to stop and brag on Milleage Grange Campus. Uh, yesterday, we participated in a dragon boat race a fundraiser for Harmony House, which is a shelter for uh, domestic violence. Um, the Dragon Boat Race is a 250-meter sprint with 20 paddlers and one drummer giving it all they have. I have a, a picture here of you. Uh, there we are in boat number one. Uh, you can tell we're almost a full boat length ahead of <clears throat> the other boat. Um, but uh, our South Coast team, team uh, named Or Are We There Yet uh, finished third overall out of 30 teams through three heats, and we also won best drummer with one of our high school students there was our best drummer. So we are very excited for them. I'm proud of uh, our team and all the hard work that they did there. Um, But I'm also proud to be part of a church that is generous and part of a church that decides to make a difference and impact its community around us. So I want to thank you uh, for being such a generous church. Uh, But now I'll get back to our message. Um, This year for spring break, My family went to Chattanooga uh, for the first time. We know a lot of people who uh, love that city and who go there and say, hey, let's go give it a try. Let's go see what Chattanooga is all about. And and I must say, after spending some time there, it it did not disappoint. Uh, We went to the aquarium, went to Ruby Falls, did Rock City, went to a lot of really good restaurants. And just a side note. If you ever ask me about a vacation, I'm going to talk to you about food. Okay, that's just that's just part of it. Oh yeah, we did some other stuff, but we ate really well. Um, but one of the sites that I really enjoyed was Rock City. And as you walk through this rock garden, if you can imagine, um, they're, they're boulders, they're, they're monstrous. Um, you, you just follow this meandering trail that naturally kind of follows the, the pathway through these huge stone structures. As, and as we were walking, we, we came upon this, this little narrow pass called Fat Man's Squeeze. Um, and my whole family and I, we, there we are in Fat Man's Squeeze. And um, at, at the nearest point, this thing's about a foot wide. Um, me... I'm whiter than that. Um, and so uh, it was a very tight squeeze to get through. You know, you have to turn sideways and shimmy. And sometimes you got to kind of squat down to get through there. Um, it, was, it was a little tough. And, uh, but my daughter, uh, who's seven, she was just like kind of walking around in there like, daddy, this is so easy. You know, I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm old and I'm big. And yes, it's not easy for me. And so she had a good time rubbing that one in. But we really enjoyed spending our time there. But it got me thinking, Have any of you ever found yourself in a similar situation where you find yourself in a tight squeeze or a difficult situation where the walls seem to be closing in on you? But then as you look around, you notice everyone else seems to be doing just fine. You know, claustrophobia is defined as the fear of having no escape and being closed into a small space. Uh, this fear refers often to our physical surroundings, very much like Fat Man there at Rock City. But I also believe that we can suffer from circumstantial claustrophobia. When, when the walls and the influences and things happening in our lives seem to be closing in on us and, and we feel like we're in these tight situations, um, we feel trapped with what's happening in our lives and we have no apparent control over what's going on. And oftentimes we think, hey, if I can just, get out into the open. If if I can get to where I can breathe, if I can get out of this tight space, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be closer to paradise. Today, as we continue in our series, Two Tickets to Paradise, I want to share with you about how God has shown us a way that we can get to paradise. You see, God wants you to know how to get to paradise. That's what he came here to do, to have us be with him. And so he wants to make sure he gives us the directions how to get there. So if you have your Bible, your Bible app, you turn with you to Matthew uh, chapter 7. Let's start in verse 13. It says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, as we kind of journey through life, we come to these forks in the road. And on one side, there's a wide road. And it looks very easy to go down that road and there's plenty of room. The other, on the other hand, is very narrow. It's a tight fit. We look at that wide road and we're like, you know, this shouldn't be that bad. It's really big. I can kind of meander about not really run into anybody else, kind of stay in my own lane. And I, there's plenty of room for me to take stuff with me on the way. It, that looks like a good way to go. And then we look over at the other hand on the narrow and that, that gonna take concentration. It's gonna be very crowded. We're gonna run into people. It's not like if, it's like how many people you're gonna run into. It, it seems complicated. And there's not much room for you to take anything with you. It seems very difficult. So why then does God tell us to go through that narrow gate? That phrase, narrow is the gate, is I think something easy for us to understand. A narrow gate is harder to pass through than one that is wide. And only a few people can go through a narrow gate at once. If you've ever been to Disney World or Six Flags in those theme parks, you're in this kind of line, but then it narrows down to those little turnstiles and everybody can only go through one at a time. And so we understand that those narrow gates are not fun. In saying that difficult is the way that leads to life, Jesus is basically telling us this, this Christianity, this following me is going to be very difficult for you. As a a matter of fact, that word difficult is from the Greek word thlebo, which means to press as they would with grapes when they press them down. To press hard upon, a compressed way, narrow, straightened, contracted. Uh, There's a lexicon with that word that adds that the word can be used metaphorically to mean trouble, affliction, or distress. So if Jesus wants to draw people to himself, why did he feel to tell the need to tell prospective disciples, hey, come follow me. It's going to be really, really hard. It's going to be difficult for you to do that. But come on, it'll be great. You see, Jesus is telling us the way that we need to go. He's telling us that we need to go in through the way he tells us. And that phrase, go in through the narrow gate, it's not a suggestion in Scripture. It's a command. The words there are a command. He's telling us, this is what you need to do. You need to go into the narrow gate. He's not saying, try as hard as you can. It'll be good enough. He's saying, no, go through it. Because this is the only way. And this way is not very common. But it is the only way that you can get to me. You see, we will either follow Christ wholeheartedly or we will go down the path of destruction. There can be no half-hearted commitment to Jesus. Uh, Revelations three fifteen through 16 says this, I know your works. You're either cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some translations actually say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I don't want to be known as God vomit. We need to be hot for Jesus. If we are not on the narrow road of discipleship, then we were on a highway to hell. You see, Jesus's teaching can be polarizing. What I mean is he teaches in such a way that we can't live a good life without him. You see, Jesus lays out a life of ethics in such a way that there's no way we can live it without him. It's impossible. You see, he draws this line in the sand and he says, this is the way it is, period. Now, the takeaway from this is he's either right and we should be all in, leaving everything behind to follow Jesus or he's wrong, which means he's crazy and he's a lunatic and we should get as far away from him as we possibly can. You see, Jesus teaches in a way that draws us into him and only him or pushes us far, far away from him. So his teaching then is either good news or it's bad news. Now, good news and bad news, that's an expression we hear daily, I think. It's something we, we're used to hearing. I mean, how many times have you heard that phrase in your life? And how often do we categorize things that we hear or read into one of those two buckets? Well, that's good news or that's bad news. As a matter of fact, we often often have jokes Based on good news and bad news. So here's the bad news. A guy falls out of an airplane at 1,000 feet. But the good news, he has on a parachute. Bad news. Parachute doesn't open. But the good news is that there's this huge haystack directly where he's going to land. Bad news. There's a pitchfork somebody left in the haystack that's sticking up, tying up. Good news, he misses the haystack. Yeah, okay. So we stand here at this fork in the road and we're trying to choose which one do we go down? We have to make a choice. And that's where we get to Proverbs four fourteen through 15. It says, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. But don't get me wrong. It's not like the broad path is for bad people. And the narrow path is for good people. You see, that good and bad category is something that we put on it. Jesus is telling us something completely different. Jesus is saying this, the narrow path is with me. The broad path is people who are not with me. It's not about good and bad, it's who's with me. And Jesus is actually standing on the narrow path, looking over at the broad path and he's saying, hey, come back and go through the narrow gate which is me. I'm Jesus. I'm the narrow gate. I'm the only way to get where you really need to go. So come back and come through me. It's not about what you can do. It's about who you know. You see, when we look at this world around us, we don't usually see paradise. If you turn on the news this morning, and got a paper, it wasn't full of, of paradise. Which means that if we want paradise then doing what the world is currently doing is not going to get us there. We're gonna have to be different than the world. And it's not just enough that we do things differently. Craig Rochelle, the pastor at Life Church, says this If you want what normal people have, do what normal people do. But if you want what few people have, do what few people do. Think about it. If you want a normal life, just live like all the normal people around you. If though you want something better, if you really believe there is something different and better than the normal life, where the majority of people seem to be traveling, you have to do something different. See, if you want what few people have, peace, joy, security, a sense of fulfillment, an an eternal destiny, if you want what few people have, then we're going to have to do what few people are willing to do. If you want to progress towards paradise, then we have to do something different. You'll have to leave the broad road, get onto the narrow path. And when you're on that narrow path, people are going to call you weird. Let me share with you an an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when we do arithmetic. When I have started to sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. So I want to invite you today to follow the teachings of Jesus and lead a life that is not normal. Because if we were to take the Bible and just push it aside for a minute and just think practically about this, just look at the world around us and think practically, I think we would agree that normal isn't working out so great. Let's just think about our schedules. We are overwhelmed, rushed, stressed, panicked, never seem to have enough time for what's truly important because we're overwhelmed with the urgent and never leave time for the quality. What about when it comes normal, when it comes to money today? I mean, let's just be really honest normal is the pursuit of material things which seem to promise happiness but oftentimes leave us wanting for more i mean normal is debt normal is financial fear think about your professional lives what's normal today for for many people what's normal is working for a paycheck doing something that they really don't want to do but it's just to get by working for a living you see, normal is feeling like there's got to be something more, but, but we just can't put our hand on what that more is. Now, I don't know about you, but, but if that's normal, you can have it because I don't want that. So instead of doing what's normal, we need to do the opposite. So it's time to start thinking about what Jesus started to do and teach us and just start acting weird to the world around us. So normal says, watch out for number one, be first. But Jesus tells us that the first will be last, and if you feel like you're in last, in God's eyes you're already first. You see, that's weird. That normal says, take and it'll be given to you. But Jesus said, No, give and it will be given to you. You see, that's weird. Normal says when someone hurts you, get even. But Jesus says when someone hurts you, to bless them, to love them, to pray for them. That's weird. Normal says if someone hits you first, then you hit them back and you hit them harder. But Jesus said if someone hits you, you turn the other cheek. You see, that's weird. Normal says, when, when someone does you wrong, hold a grudge against them and hate them. But Jesus said, when someone does you wrong, forgive them 70 times, seven times. You see, that is weird. But I know this to be true, that weird works. I think all of us know that weird works. Just because because it's not what everyone else is doing doesn't mean that it's not going to be effective. If we stop this morning and start thinking about every scientific discovery, every invention, every advancement in in education, in industry, it wasn't because someone kept doing what everybody else was doing. No, somebody was weird. Somebody said, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to step out there and say, hey, let's, let's try this instead and see what happens. You see, that's what Jesus calls us to, to be daring to be different. And it might mean that, yes, you're weird. You see, in 1398, Tamir, who happened to be a descendant of Genghis Khan, did something very weird in his capture of Delhi in India. When faced by the sultan and his 120 war elephants, Tamir ordered his terrified fleeing men To dismount and load their camels with as much hay as possible. Now, as soon as these elephants started their charge, Tamir's forces set their camels and the hay on fire and then prodded them toward the enemy. Strangely, not a monumental mistake at the sight of the burning camels was enough to spook the elephants, which turned around back into the Indian front line the Indian army was trampled to death by their own elephants. And these elephants wore chainmail chain mill and they had put poison on the tusks. And most, most of the Indian army was killed that day by their very own elephants. Tamir won an easy victory. And he now had 120 elephants. So, you know, he lost his camels, but he had 120 elephants, which he actually used to conquer the rest of India. You see, if you want unusual victories in your life, the kind of victories that few people have, you have to be willing to do what few people are willing to do. You have to get out there and be different. You see, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of scripture lead us off the normal broad path onto a narrow and much different path. So again, if you want what normal people have, just keep doing what they're doing. Keep doing what the flow of the world tells you to do. But if you want what few people have, then do what this book right here tells us to do. Be different. Romans twelve two says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I love the way that the message translation says this verse. Wouldn't you agree that so many people today just fit into culture without even thinking about it? But the Bible says instead to fix your attention to God. Not on everybody else, not on what's happening around you, but on God. And you'll be changed from the inside out. You see, weird people don't think like normal people think. Why is this important? Because the way you think determines the way you behave, it determines what you become. Remember the little engine that could? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And he did. You see, behavior modification won't get the job done. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, Let's look at the... The game of golf is an example real quick. Most people play golf recreationally. They, they enjoy getting out there with their friends, having a good time. I myself, when I was younger, dabbled in golf. Um, it wasn't very pretty. And so I stopped dabbling. Um, I'm not spending money on stuff I'm not very good at. Um, but every once in a while when you're out there, even in the, the mere few chances I did, every once in a while you hit an incredible shot you may have even gotten a hole in one, but you hit one of those shots and you're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But here's something interesting. When I hit that shot, I didn't have somebody running up to me saying, man, you should play on the PGA because they saw all the shots I hit before that onto their fairway when I was not on their fairway. And they're like, no, 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 you don't don't belong here. You see, behavior modification is just like that. It's just this random shot every once in a while. Every once in a while, I do good. And some of us are better than others, but there's still not consistency there. It's still pretty random. Now, transformation, on the other hand, is someone who dedicates their life to the game of golf or really any sport or any other activity. You see, they get up early in the morning and they go out and they hit buckets of balls. They practice putting for hours a day. They play every single day, rain or shine. They, they they watch other people and how they play. They study swing and, and what's the best swing I can possibly do. They they ask people to coach them and to give them advice. You see, when they hit a good shot, it's because they have trained their body and their mind on every aspect of that the rotation, the swing, the follow through. You see, their good shot is a result of transformation. And it happens over and over and over again because they're no longer just a random golfer, but they are professional and they've made it be a point. You see, the Bible says the, true, the same is true for us. You see, I, I have to say that I'm pretty tired of normal Christianity. I'm tired of lukewarm, mediocre, half-hearted, go to church, but not really be any different Christians. You see, there's this empty sense of risk, nothing, sacrifice, nothing. Come to church that makes me feel good about myself and then go home and do whatever I want to do. Don't change me. Don't challenge me. You see, this is the type of church that you're used to or this is the type of church you're looking for. Then I have some bad news for you here today. Here at Southcrest, we're not that church. When I read scripture, Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you will lose it. When I read the Bible, it says to take up your cross, an instrument of pain, torture, and death, to take that up daily. The people around here are weird. They they love on other people. They give out of their prosperity, out of their poverty. They give so other people can have. They're weird. But that's who we are as a church. You see, we're ready for that. And we're ready to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, that's a verse many of us have heard. And it's very easy to say that we want to be in the world, but not of the world. But if we're going to be honest, it's a very hard verse to live by. And so usually we take up one of three postures when it comes to relating to the world around us. Now, two of these are mistakes, and one of them is what God intended this first posture that we take is one of separation. This, this stance of separation is, is almost like we believe paradise is already here. And so we're going to withdraw into this Christian bubble and just ignore what's happening in the world around us. I'm good. I know how to get to heaven. I'm just going to pull away from all this sin and all this evil in the world. And I'm just going to focus on us, my, my family. We're just going to be good. But there's two major issues with separation, First is when I try to pull away from all the sin in the world around me and I separate, you know what I end up doing? I'm a sinner. Sin is part of who I am. When I separate from the world and all of its sin, I'm still isolated with me and all my sin. I can't escape it. And God knew I couldn't escape it. So I I separate from something I can't ever separate from. The, The second issue with separation is this. Jesus told us to go and tell other people about him. When I have separated myself from everything, who am I telling about Jesus? What kind of impact am I making in the world around me? As a matter of fact, it was a command from God to go and tell other people about him. So separation is wrong. Now, another response, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum from separation, is that of one of imitation, you see, most of us are aware that Christians in the world today are viewed as judgmental and hypocritical. And, and Lord forbid that we forbid, uh, you know, offend someone. And so in our effort not to be offensive to anyone, we decide to be just like them. We're gonna imitate the world. Now that, that's wrong because God's called us to be a peculiar people. God called us to be different. He called us not to be the same. So we're not to imitate the world. As a matter of fact, believe this or not, this is gonna be like eye-opening for somebody in this room today. But I can disagree with you and at the exact same time, still love you. And that's what God has called us to. You see, how did God want us to relate to the world? It's through the process of infiltration. We are to infiltrate the word. We can see that in John chapter 17, starting with verse 14. It says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. that They also may be sanctified in truth. You see, we must be in the world and not of it so we can give something to it. So, so we can change it. We must love the unlovable. We must show grace and mercy to people. We shouldn't be offended when sinners sin because that's what sinners do. And if we're honest with ourselves, we sin too. You see, but we are called to help people see Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which weigh war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, we must be transformed and love people so that they can see Jesus in us. What would happen in the Grange, Noonan? What would happen in South Atlanta if we started to live weird lives and stop being normal. Another excerpt from Mere Christianity says this, a Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us really want it. And we are not going to want it until we become fully Christian. I may repeat, do as you would be done to, till I'm black in the face, but I cannot really carry it out till I love my neighbor as myself. And I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself till I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so, as I warned you, we are driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters. For the longest way round is the shortest way home. Think about this. Broad and wide, it's the road and gate, which the majority of the people travel. Unfortunately, in the crowd, that's where we often find comfort. Say, hey, look, look, look what they're doing. They're doing what we're doing. We should be fine. We're, we're going where everyone else is going. We must be going in the right direction. You know, we're, we're living like they're living. We're normal. We must be Okay. The way is broad. You know who's on that road? Irreligious people, people who don't go to church, and people who define their lives based on their own will and their own sense of morality, and people who are wicked. You know who else is on that road? Religious people, people who are self righteous. People who go to church and who know who God is, but don't have a relationship with him. Let me say this as soberly as I can. If your life looks like everybody else's life, if you're doing what everyone else is doing, if you're pretty normal, It could be that you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. Because when you leave the normal road to get onto a road, a smaller one that very few people are on, the normal people are gonna think that you're weird. They're gonna point it out. They're gonna say things to you about it. They'll make fun of you. They'll judge you because your life isn't the same as theirs. But I, I'd rather be a fool in the eyes of man than to be a fool in the eyes of God. Robert Frost said, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the road less traveled and that has made all the difference.